This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, we have packed a few different shows together that we call Highlights to help you to get the most bang for your time and educating you on the topics that you want to learn from. We would love to hear from you. I am grateful that you are with us today. Have a blessed day. Our guest is Logan Freeman. Thanks for being on the show, Logan. I'm super excited to be here, Whitney. Your business is changed a little bit, right? I mean, you've grown, you're doing bigger deals, you're you're yeah. working with investors, you're syndicating deals, and appreciate you again sharing this experience and just how you've grown. But one expertise you have is working with investors and helping them to invest from out of state successfully. Absolutely. Right? So let's dive into that a little bit and you know, tell me some of those problems and let's dig in and, and how you help them. Absolutely. So there's four things that I really try to help out-of-state investors understand, or even agents that are working with out-of-state investors. When I tell my friends, family, whoever, what I do is, they say, so you go buy houses and, and apartments. I said, no, I buy income streams. And that's what we purchase. We don't really care what it looks like. Now, to an extent, right? But we're buying income streams. So really understanding the math behind that. So when I think about an out-of-state investor, it's very scary for somebody like that to be placing capital into sometimes a project that they've never even seen. Whitney, right? You understand that. Many of your investors, many of my investors have never seen the property. So you're really focused on building that trust and rapport on the phone. And the only way to do that, what I've found, is to do what you're going to say you're going to do and be honest. And you get everything out up front. So what I call that, number one, is clear expectations. So when I ask a buyer, what were you going to need to feel comfortable to move forward on this purchase? I don't want you to put an offer in until we get the documents that you need to work through. We need to run down what the taxes are going to be, what the insurance. We need to talk to a property manager. We need to look at leases, T12s, and rent rolls. That's fine. But... I take a backwards approach where I definitely don't want to, to do that stuff after we're under contract. And my close rate is right around 90% of my transactions because of this. I might lose a couple of deals with me and that's fine because I'm not getting an offer in. But at the same time, I'm not wasting the seller's time. I'm not wasting the buyer's time because we have clear expectations going in. And not only has that helped me with my investors out of state, it has helped me with my reputation here in the Kansas City market. We perform and we're closer. So that's number one. Do you have any questions before we move on to number two on that? That's uh, really good. Do what you say you're going to do, be upfront. And I like to just like how you're asking them questions, you know, like, what are you going to need to move yeah. forward? You know, just putting it out there. So letting them know they can ask questions. They can tell you, you know, because if you don't ask, they may not even pursue the deal at all. Yeah. And then, you know, and then we, we get down 45 days into the transaction and you've got $5,000 in inspections. You've got all of this time, effort and energy. And then we find something that we could have had before we even went under contract. It's a much easier way to think about it, but it's also kind of backwards. Whenever you think of a, a regular real estate agent, all they want to do is get something under contract and then try to figure it out. Well, that's not my approach. So that's that first one is those clear expectations. Number two, I'm going to say is communication. And there's another great book that I just cannot recommend enough. And it's from Chris Voss, Never Split the Difference. And he calls it a negotiating book. I would call it a communication book. That and Crucial Conversations. And those two books have helped me have tough conversations with people and get things out on the table, not only from the seller side, but the buyer side. But one, one example I'll give you that this kind of bit me in the rear, I will, I will say, is, is recently we were working on a transaction of 32 properties. So it's about a $2.5, $2.6 million purchase. And it was a lot of properties. 
basically I forgot to ask the buyer. The buyer had done a good job of kind of winning me over, so to speak, by showing me their track record, showing me what they have done in the past. What I forgot to ask, there's two issues here. One is what their structure was on their syndication, because I didn't even know they were going to be a syndicating this deal. I thought he was a buyer outright. And then number two, what are the expectations on that structure to as investors? And so that was a big, big piece because we got down the road 25 days into the transaction. I underwrote the deal and he put it into his model and just couldn't figure out why we were not getting the right, the right type of structure. And it was all because of the structure. So communication upfront with your investor on what they're trying to accomplish. So starting with the end in mind, how they're going to get there. And if they're buying it outright or they're going to go source capital as well. So that would be number two. So number three, if you're working with an out-of-state investor, an investor needs to think about the agent that they're working with, and they need to be willing to pay up front. And here's what I mean by that. Not pay the agent, but pay to find some marketing dollars to get out there into the marketplace. The agents here are only as good as the network that they have. So really, if somebody is serious about coming into a market like Kansas City, and they have a specific property, that type that they want to, to work with. Multiple times in the past, I've been I've been able to dial in using my resources, Reonomy, CoStar, and property parcel records, things like that. And I'll create an awesome list. But that's not necessarily my job to call that list or market to that list. And the last thing is to just to get everything cleared up front so that you can perform. And this kind of piggybacks on number one. But I, for example, I've got a listing on a 32-unit property. And I'm really telling those buyers that are contacting me on it, I don't think it's very good for us to put an offer in until you have done your whole process that you can perform. And so this is where I really ask for, where do you own other properties? Do you, have you syndicated before? Do you own anything outright? What is it going to take for you to actually perform? And then also, you know, this is an easy one where you can talk to, I have them talk to my local bank that we've done multiple million dollar transactions with and say, can you underwrite this person for me and see if they're a real deal? We are joined by Jay Tenenbaum. Jay is with the Scottsdale Real Estate Investments and has acquired over 450 distressed mortgage notes and real property in more than 30 states in his real estate career. Jay has a background in the legal field as well. We're excited to have him on the show. Thanks for joining us, Jay. Thank you, Sam. Well, pleased to be here. Excellent. Jay, I wondered if maybe we could start with how you got into mortgage notes. As we were chatting before the show, you mentioned you had been in the legal field working in debt collection for a number of years, and then you've transitioned into mortgage notes. What was that journey like? How are you where you are today? Sure. So first of all, I like to say I've been in debt all my life, just not personally. So I was a debt collection attorney for 20 years, 2009 to 2012, started investing in buying judgment liens in California and executing on real property. And then late 2013, got went, you know, got exposed to, you know, mortgage note investing. And it was an easy transition, just another debt instrument, you know, different debt instrument and made that transition very swiftly. Oh, that's excellent. You guys focus on secondary markets. I'm curious why you guys have picked those markets, what you would call a secondary market and why that works for you and your team. Sure. So the secondary markets are, first of all, twofold to this. One is we are buying distressed mortgage notes. Okay. For example, Bank of America, Morgan, JP Morgan Chase, whatever, originates a loan to you back whenever, right? And then you sell it, they sell it on, on the on the market five minutes later, 
and they sell it to some hedge fund who strokes a seven, eight figure check, who then sells it to another hedge fund for $1.95 more, and ultimately trickles down to smaller investors such as, such as ourselves, where up till now, the loan has just been in default, and nobody's talked to a borrower, nobody's started foreclosure, nobody's done anything. And so when we pick it up, we go, like I used to say, like Star Trek, we'll do where no one's gone before. We'll actually work the no through whether we're speaking to the borrower or starting foreclosure. And so you guys specialize in non-performing notes. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Because for starters, well, because of my background, I can, in, a, in the very beginning, cut my teeth buying, you know, low, what we call low balance assets, meaning the houses in those areas were worth $50,000, give or take, right? You're buying these loans for like, you know, five, $10,000. And you're having a conversation with a borrower and all of a sudden, you know, you're getting a $300 a month, you know, loan modification payment. Your return on investment is awesome, right? And so if you think about it, if I'm buying a note for 10 grand and I'm getting a $300 payment, I'm getting a 36% return annually, right? I've turned that non-performing loan into a value-add performing loan, right? Now, the performing market probably paying twenty-five, dollars $30,000 for that or more. So my return is not as great. I'm paying the premium for the gains in cash flow. You know, because of my background, it's easy for me to do. Going back to what you said before with regard to secondary markets, I also established my forte where I lived in, when I started investing, I lived in California. I moved to here in Arizona about four years ago. I've never bought anything, whether in wherever I lived, whether it was California or Arizona. So I always learned how to buy stuff out of state because in the Midwest and South primarily, that's where the better opportunities exist. You're in judicial foreclosure states, so this process takes longer. But ultimately, you get your better discount because of that. You know, California's, a, you know, Arizona are, you know, need a trust states. Mortgage, you know, foreclosures take five minutes. And for that, you'd be paying a premium for them. Yeah. And so what are the risks and what's the typical investor profile? You guys work with people from around the country. You know, there's pros and cons. I mean, you kind of outline there's better yield in the non-performing notes. Are you guys taking strictly first position notes? And if so, how do you ameliorate the risk? If you're taking second position, you know, it can take a little longer to unwind. Say you can't get a note performing. I mean, you have to go through that foreclosure process. How long does it take to actually realize a gain? Sure. So first of all, a couple things. Number one, I've only invested in first. There's various reasons why not seconds. One is better being first than second. <laughs> but seconds just... The marketplace was atrocious when I first started. The sellers in the industry weren't that reputable. Plus, there's just too many, much, much, much more risk involved in second. You got them at, at steeper discounts, but there's just much more, much risk, risk involved. With regards to buying first, the foreclosure process is in the judicial states, takes anywhere from, could be six months to a year. But the thing is, the key is you want to minimize your risk, meaning we started out buying pools of assets. Like I'll buy three, four, five, ten. The largest pool I ever bought was like 40 assets at one point in time. So you minimize your risk that way because of the diversification you achieve, number one. So that's one of the reasons that we have to say I'm buying first, I'm buying I'm diverse, diversifying. I've bought pools before where I made one phone call and started generating cash. I've done it several times, a couple of different pools that come to mind where I got a majority of the portfolio cash flowing you know, very, very quickly. We bought 21 seller finance notes in September of 2018 for $85,000 total, right? It was a hedge fund that I bought about 120 assets from earlier. They were getting down to the very last, last of their lot and almost immediately reached out to 
got about 13 of those, 13, 14 of those performing immediately, spinning off about five grand a month, almost immediately right out the door. So yeah, you can generate the cash flow. Now, I also am an advocate, you've got to set your backstop. What I mean by that is when the borrower can't get out of their own way, you have to start the foreclosure. I started aggressively only as a backstop. If I'm you know, talking to you and you're giving me lip service and everything else, the loan just continues to stay in the fall and I'm just, you know, my ROI goes down, right? So as I said, the backstop, now my action creates your reaction. I know in the multifamily world, which is where we play a little bit more, if we as the landlord don't hold up our end of the lease in holding the tenant to the terms of the lease, so it's beyond just, hey, we didn't provide a clean place of habitation, but if we don't initiate eviction proceedings within a certain window, unless there's extenuating circumstances like the moratorium, then we're in default of the lease or we're breaking the lease and we can't enforce its provisions on the tenant. Is it kind of that same methodology for foreclosures? Well, other than the moratoriums, it's really the investor, the lender's call, right? When you're buying notes, you are you step in the shoes of the lender. You are the lender per se. It's your call. Those who sit around and don't do it, I think are just doing themselves a disservice because if the loan's not performing and you're not foreclosing, what are you doing? The loan doesn't automatically start generating cash flow on the shelf, right? It just has got to do something. And I know I've talked to certain investors like, well, I don't want to spend the money to do it. You know, I bought a loan for two grand. Okay, but it's not doing anything. It's only two grand. You risk to minimize because your investment's not huge, but it's not doing anything. So you put a little bit of money into it. You start foreclosure. You can get the money back because most states, the foreclosure fees are recoverable. And now you generate some reaction by a borrower and, you know, who knows? They just like, you know, when a tenant runs and jumps up and pays the, the past due rent, right? Though you have those kind of tenants, you know, you got to almost threaten eviction or send them an eviction before they run up and pay. Well, that's the same thing happens here. Makes a lot of sense. Coming into managing all these properties. I mean, you're in Phoenix, you're acquiring these properties around the country, primarily said in the Midwest and in the South. What are some systems that you've put in place? What are some tricks that maybe our audience could use? There's a lot of folks that are investing out of state. It might not be in notes specifically, but what has been key to your success in managing these assets? The key to the success is building a strong team in those markets. I've kissed a few frogs along the way, you know, finding the right team members, right? I found on balance trying to find the national vendors, you know, national property preservation guys, you know, national this, national that just don't really work out because all they're doing is farming out to a local affiliate anyway. You might as well go directly and engage a local affiliate in that market. Your team building usually starts with finding that good realtor who likes working with investors, who has the connections or their own contracting crew already. Secondarily, if, even if you're not even buying rentals, you a property manager knows everybody anyway, and that pretty much affords you. There's where your team starts. Now, with Scottsdale, we've grown and we've added team members to kind of oversee that. Like, for example, we have our own project manager now in-house you know, to deal with the lo- building local teams himself, right? It just takes the burden off of us. Although we've got some very strong teams in some very strong areas. New Orleans, Pittsburgh, you know, have, we've got extremely um, sound team members. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today. 